Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Abusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish, even during these trying times. Bryce Shashuk joins us today. He is the managing partner of Global Life Capital, an investment office based in Toronto, New York, and San Francisco. Prior to Global Life, Bryce co-founded, led, and exited multiple telecom companies, including Wind Mobile. Bryce, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast. Thanks very much. Very nice to meet you, and thank you guys for having me and for doing some of this stuff for the ecosystem. Definitely a pleasure having you on the Beehive Capital Show as well. You have been providing amazing advice to the community in the past bit during these trying times. And we thought it would be great for you to come in and speak further on these points that you have been discussing. Now, as a backstory, you are the managing partner of Global Live Capital. Could you explain what Global Live Capital is? I absolutely. Okay, so very quickly, I'm managing partner of Global Live Capital and to give you a quick on, on what Global Life Capital is, we, I mean, it's a longer story, but very quickly, myself and my business partners have been starting businesses in various ways, shapes, and forms since 1998 in Canada. So call it over 20 years. We built and scaled a number of telecom businesses, which we're going to talk about a little on this call. The result of those builds and scales were a sequence of exits in 2016 to a variety of different parties. Upon exit, and I say it to people this way, at the start of 2016, we had about 2,000 employees and you know we were heads down operating businesses and growing and pushing hard. And by the end of 2016, we had eight employees and we had sold our operating businesses. So Global Life Capital is really the result of the liquidity of those sales of these operating businesses. And upon the liquidity, we've built an investment company following general family office principles with some twists and turns that relate to how we like to invest. In particular, we allocate more significantly than any family office investment platform that I've met to the innovation economy. We do a few other things differently as well. But our investment platform, which resulted from our liquidity from operating businesses, is called Global Life Capital. I see. And one of these telecom businesses that were founded and acquired was Wind Mobile, correct? That is correct. Yes. And just to give a little bit of history there. So my business partner, Tony Lacavera, a very prominent uh, entrepreneur in the Canadian ecosystem, founded a non-wireless telecom business in 1998. And he started building that using kind of basic business building principles. He saw a regulatory dislocation opportunity. He put a team together, started from scratch, built a product, uh, started to get his first customers, had many pivots, a lot of organic growth, product extensions, new customer segments that he targeted and so on. He grew that company very quickly. I joined him in 2003 and we continued to grow and grow through both organic and M&A. And in 07, late 2007, we'd now kind of had 10 years under our belt to building. Um, the government in late 07 did something very interesting from a policy standpoint. 
they said they looked at the wireless industry and what they saw was i would call almost a perfect oligopoly literally if you look globally across industries it was almost the perfect oligopoly and what does that mean that means it had if you look at the developed world rogers telson bell had the highest profit margins of any wireless market in the world number 2 we had the lowest penetration of customers using wireless in the developed world and i'll explain that issue we had the highest bills we had the most incidents of bill shock they had the lowest net promoter scores that their customers hated them probably still do to a degree but they hated them and the government recognized to their credit that wireless was and mobile was becoming such a key component to the innovation economy that they said we need to introduce competition to this oligopoly we got to get prices down we've got to get better service and we we've got to get more innovative thinking so in late 07 they put a policy in place to allow new entrants to come into wireless we saw the opportunity of our careers and we ended up putting together a business plan and then uh, running around the world ultimately meeting a capital provider as well as a strategic wireless global operator out of Egypt and we brought our business and canadian experience he brought capital and wireless experience we put that together and in early 2008 we formed win mobile and started to build it that is beautiful and so what was your involvement specifically with the founding of win mobile to the exit So my general involvement was as CFO. So I was founding CFO. I kind of spent most of that era as the CFO of Wind and I handled, you know, I started finance only. So I handled all of the, you know, fundraising, I handled the typical build that you do in a finance function and business planning and and forecasting, which is very important obviously in in a greenfield wireless company and so on. And then over time just as my as i started to scale my own personal capabilities and uh things moved around internally i ended up adding human resources i ended up adding procurement and logistics to my bailiwick so when we got to the end of the project uh i had finance hr procurement logistics and that was kind of over the run of the the build of the company That is beautiful and it seems that these experiences make you uniquely qualified to be providing insights and advice to the startup community and startup leadership teams. And with that said, it seems that you are now associated with many accelerators across the Canadian ecosystem. Could you explain a bit more into these accelerators and your involvement within them? Absolutely. Yeah, and here's what I'll say about kind of our backgrounds and then how we can translate that to the next generation of entrepreneurs. So, I have a personal belief that it is and and there's a quote that Steve Case, uh the founder of AOL made that goes something like this. It is the responsibility of successful entrepreneurs and business people to give mentorship and coaching to the next generation of entrepreneurs to help them move faster. quicker make less mistakes scale more effectively okay and that has been a founding principle of how i think about the world okay so what does that mean well again coming out of our first telecom business doing 4000 in revenue in 1998 to win mobile which the year before we sold it did 500 million in revenue and we had like i said about 2000 employees across those businesses and we'd really scaled 
that's an incredible experience set. It was the kind of the most amazing project of my life or projects and one of the most amazing scale-ups one can be part of. And when we sold in 2016, I was absolutely, I was young and I was absolutely uninterested in going and drinking cocktails in the Caribbean. That was just not how I wanted to live. So what was interesting to me personally and my business partners was taking the learnings that we had scaling and applying it to areas of the, of the economy, the innovation economy that were interesting to us. And what we have found is, if you look at the Canadian innovation economy, is it has had an interesting scaling life cycle itself. That is a, a bit of a longer story that we won't cover in this question. But one of the things that's happened to the positive has been a lot of structure put to some of the early stage resources, if you will, for startup entrepreneurs. And those manifest themselves in things like Creative Destruction Lab, Next Canada, Founder Institute, Ryerson DMZ, Techstars has, a, has multiple chapters here, and Invest Ottawa and Mars, and the list goes on and on and on. And what we found is after starting to get cadence on how to, how to mentor effectively and also on how to, how to invest effectively, is these accelerators were extraordinarily valuable to us to both have an insertion point that allows us to see a lot of things in a structured way at one time. So you get a very efficient use of time, but it also allowed us to give advice across a whole spectrum of what I call the innovation flywheel in a very efficient way. So how I think about the world is I want to find spots that I can give of my time and experience. I would call it, you know, it's not pure uh, altruism because I see lots of great deals. I meet lots of good entrepreneurs and it drives a knowledge set for me that I can apply across a portfolio, including in traditional businesses that are non-tech. But at the same time, I'm hoping that the entrepreneurs that I am able to talk to and have some teaching with, if you want to call it that, benefit from that experience that we've had. They make mistakes quicker. They miss making some mistakes. They scale faster and better. And they take some of those learnings and they are able to drive their business more effectively. So that's kind of how we think about that world. Very interesting. And within this innovation flywheel, as you've mentioned, what are the core themes of advice do you feel has been the most impactful in implanting in the minds of these founders and leadership teams? Okay, so good question. Very good question. I'm going to take a second to speak about how we think about the flywheel. And then I think that will tell you kind of the, the points of where we, how we advise. Okay. And for those who don't know what a flywheel is, uh, the concept was introduced in my, to my knowledge by a business writer in the United States named Jim Collins. Jim Collins is a very famous writer who's kind of a thought leader in business principles. And in around 2000, he wrote a book called Good to Great. And a lot of people will know that book. Many will have read it. It sold millions and millions of copies. It's a bit of an iconic book. In Good to Great, Jim Collins introduced the principle of what he called a flywheel. And it was an illustrative concept to show business acceleration. And it kind of goes like this. A flywheel is a super heavy wheel that when you start to push it, and pushing it means getting momentum with business actions that start to feed off each other, the wheel will start to turn. And it'll start initially to turn slowly. And then the more it's fed and the more that it feeds on itself and the more momentum that it gets, it starts to spin faster and faster. And then eventually it starts to roll of its own momentum. And that is what Jim Collins calls a company going from good to great. 
Okay, so take that concept. Now, one of the most famous flywheels is Amazon's. And I'll explain it for one minute, and then we'll talk about how we apply that to the innovation economy. Jeff Bezos is a fan of Jim Collins and uses the flywheel illustratively for Amazon. And it kind of goes like this. At the top of the flywheel, he talks about selection. So product availability and selection. Next component to the flywheel is the user experience. Okay. Third component, and think of these as feeding off each other. Third component is traffic. Okay. That traffic then brings third-party sellers and other ability to put more inventory on, which increases selection, which increases user experience, which increases traffic, which and, and that starts spinning and spinning. And there's a second-order component to his flywheel, which he had the genius of seeing, is that he has a fixed cost base. And as more sales are happening across a fixed cost base, he's able to effectively get a more efficient, on a per-transaction basis, use of cost. And that causes him to lower prices, which feeds back into the user experience. So that first and second order flywheel turning is the genius of Amazon and has been kind of what's made it the e-commerce success that it has become. Okay. He, he also, by the way, applies those principles to AWS and to some of the other businesses that he's in, and he's been very successful with it. So if you take that concept and you say, how do we think about a flywheel in general for innovation companies? And here's how we break it out. In the inside of the flywheel, we start with talent, team, people. So the, the people side, and there's no cliche there. It is what is the key factor of success. Then you follow, a team comes together and they have an idea. They're noticing things. They want to solve a customer problem. So the next component of the flywheel is the idea that they come up with or the problem they notice that they, they are going to solve. That then leads to a product or service development exercise takes your science, your tech, your engineering, your math, all of that kind of stuff to build that product. That then moves to commercial traction. You start selling to customers. You start partnering. You do channel. You do marketing, all these kinds of things. That then leads typically to a need for capital to start growing your business and feeding the growth engine. And then that can lead as you get to scale to what we call non-organic growth, which is typically M&A. And then you're back to talent. And when that wheel starts to spin talent, idea, product, commercial, capital, non-organic growth, and then keep doing that and keep spinning that. And it gets momentum and then it starts to feed itself. And then it goes more and more and more. That is when a company or an ecosystem goes to good to great. And on the second order of that flywheel, there are two important things. One is exits. So every once in a while, there's an exit that feeds capital and Again, experienced entrepreneurs back into the ecosystem. And then the second component of second order is around the companies that are innovation companies is you have all these other, we call it mentorship, but you have all these other organizations. You have people like me who give back their time and judgment. You have labs, accelerators, lobbyists. You have uh, community organizations like Tech Toronto. And all of those sit on the side and they help the companies move their flywheel faster. Okay, so if you take that overall concept and then you say, how do we think about mentorship? I use the flywheel as the components to how I mentor. So when I sit with an entrepreneur and I want to create some structure to a session, I talk them through the flywheel and I say to them, walk me through your business in the context of talent, ideas, product, commercial, capital, MA. And that starts a dialogue. And then we can focus in on where we want to try to provide some guidance to the entrepreneur. Excellent. 
So it seems a, f- a flywheel is a framework that you apply to think through how to go about expanding and growing the innovation ecosystem and helping individual founders grow their companies. Now, I'm curious to know, have you thought of a framework in terms of how founders can think about maneuvering the current economic landscape during these times? Yeah, so it's a great question. And what I will say to you is COVID has been really interesting for me personally and for how I think about, let's call it, advising the ecosystem, our own portfolio companies, and everything. And of course, everyone would say that because it's a crisis the likes of which we've never seen. I think you know you can say that to a degree about every crisis, but this is the most globally impacted and different than any other crisis in the last few generations in the sense that it's not a financial crisis caused by leverage. It's not a shorter term style crisis caused by a very negative event like a terrorist event. And it's not a frothy, you know, a system froth then results in a crash, i.e. .com 1.0. What it is, is it's a global health crisis that is a true impact really to everyone, which means to everything, okay? So it's totally different. And what happened in our side is that, you know, we have an investment portfolio, we're managing it, we cross many asset classes, and we had to think about how do we first get our hands around this crisis? And very quickly, people look to us as board members, as advisors, as ecosystem contributors to ask us for some advice on how to handle it. And so what I would say to you is through a sequence of iterative discussions with our portfolio, with the ecosystem, with listening closely to data, with kind of watching what's been going on, and with trying to apply some analogs from past crisis, either within our own businesses or in some of these other, you know, global financial crisis or September 11th or whatever, we've tried to take a bunch of concepts, put them together and give some advice to our own portfolio and to the ecosystem and how to think about this. And where it eventually got to is a framework. And we break the framework into three components. And the notes to this are on LinkedIn in my profile, and anyone is welcome to reach out. I can send them to the Beehive crew if they want to release them however they want to do it. These are public. But basically, we break it into three orders. The first order was survivability. So as everyone now knows, the first 30 days, we go from working in an office at a normal pace, and then suddenly we all shut down, we go home, uh, every, every childcare service shuts down, schools shut down, we can't travel, the whole world changes literally in a week. And so the act of adapting to that, understanding the impact on your business, applying for government support, understanding what's happening with your customers, dealing with your staff issues and the communication and the remote tools. That was the first few weeks. And that's what we call survivability. Interestingly, I will say across the world in general, our portfolio, uh, specifically in the innovation economy that I've seen, people will move very quickly through that. They adapted well. The technology tools that are out there were able to be purposed pretty quickly to this. And we've all kind of, we're all so used to now, you know, Zoom and Slack and all these other mechanisms to be more productive remotely. It's not, by no means is it perfect. And we have lots of other societal challenges with this, but we kind of got our basic stuff together very quickly. And so after that, then you had to start thinking about the future. And how we framed the future is second order and third order. And the second order was what I'll call near-term thinking. And that was, it kind of goes like this. After you're through survivability, take a breath, first of all. Get your head up a little bit, okay? And then start, the, the term that we use is start thinking forward. 
So start, you know, talk to your customers, look at your product, understand what changes have happened with your customers, with your customers, customers, how you should think about retooling your product roadmaps, how you would think about providing value to your customer as a good soldier, as a good supplier. You know, how do you do discovery differently with your customers to understand what their priorities are to allow you to reprioritize on your side? And the list of that goes on and on. Okay. And that we'll call it is changing your business near term to be the best supplier to your customers for whatever it is that you offer. Okay. And then the third order is it starts to get candidly more strategic. So in crisis, we have found that opportunities arise that are interesting. For example, you might find some competitors that got weak by virtue of the crisis. Could you acquire them? You might see engineering teams that sadly weren't commercial, didn't make it, and you could hire those teams because they're now on the market. And you might see broader strategic opportunities to expand your product in your customer's tech stack because you're able to add modules sufficiently that allow them to solve problems cheaper, faster, better. And so the third order is what we would call more midterm type strategic thinking that include those types of activities. And none of them work sequentially. They're all parallel. You could often go back to survivability and review your runway. You might be fundraising and so on. At the same time, you see another customer opportunity that arises through your discovery and that changes your product. And it's kind of an iterative thing that's now always going on. And so that's how we framed it. And we found that it holds well because it covers near-term thinking, but it also covers strategic and longer-term thinking and broader customer interactions, which ultimately are the most critical to feed back to solving problems. I do understand. Now, going through first order, second order, third order, a bit more deeper during the first order thinking, this is a time of, I believe you've also said wartime thinking. And at this point, you're considering the cadence of communications that you're having with financing partners. You're making decisions based on runway. Practically speaking, there are many ventures that were actually uh, put in difficult situations in terms of the runway and their financing. How would you suggest if a venture communicates with their financing partners and meeting the point where their cash does run out. Okay. So fundraising is a candidly is a, is a complicated topic as it relates to a crisis. Okay. And we're literally getting data continuously on this, but here's, here's what I, I, I would say to you is barring zoom and companies that have found themselves with this incredible opportunity. That's very unique because of what's happened in an unanticipated way. That's definitely not the average. Okay. The average is, is there's a, there's challenge here and everything is harder and go to market strategy has to be reset and things are slowing down and your sales slow and your growth slows and, and so on and so forth. For those companies, fundraising is far more, I would say, concerning and also it needs to be thought through in very specific ways. Okay. And look, here's some sound bites on it. So the first thing that I'll say is that you know, for the first time in years, we started hearing the venture capital industry talk about efficiency versus growth. So there had been a long run of feeding these growth engines, spending tons of money, these very large raises at successively higher valuations, and just creating the, that culture of growth. And for the first time in a long time, we started hearing the word efficiency used. 
which means get your unit economics in order, understand your path to profitability. We're not going to just spend for growth at all costs. So that mentality shift was super important. Okay. Then we started looking at, okay, so what is your actual runway? And the numbers range from 12 to 36 months in terms of best practice and where you are as a company in a fundraising cycle. Did you raise just before the crisis? Were you kind of lucky in that cycle or were you getting close to raising and we're just about to start all of that factors into this? And then what I'll say to you is, is that in times of crisis, in a general statement, capital providers get more conservative. Okay, they just they just factually do. It's just it's a long proven thing across all crises. What that generally means is that capital is scarcer. There's less competition in deployment of capital, which means that the cost of capital goes up and valuations typically compress. There's been some mixed data on this now that we're in month three. It seems like people are starting to come back into the market more aggressively for the right companies. But let's just say as a general proposition, that's what we see in crisis. Okay, so what does that all mean? I mean, the basic way to say it is, is if you are a company and you think about the the principles of fundraising, you have to have a good story. You have to be solving a market need, uh, customer problems. You have to have good forecasts. You have to have an an understanding of your unit economics. You have to have a good view on your go-to-market and your, your product roadmap and your team and talent and all that kind of stuff. All those principles apply. They just apply now, again, in a crisis from the bottom up thinking where you have to be able to re-explain all of this in the context of a crisis where a lot of things have changed. And so basically what we tell people is you need to be able to get back to first principles on the unit economics and financial side of your business, forecasting the whole narrative around your product, your customers, your commercial traction. And if you can make sense of it, and if you can make sense of it within ranges that are defensible and forecastable, then you can probably figure out a way to fundraise. Okay. But if you cannot, so if the world got too uncertain on you and you have to really reset the deck, as they say, around product and customer, potentially big, big strategic pivots, then it's going to be far more difficult. It's almost like you're fundraising as a new company that doesn't have the history anymore of the repeatable kind of unit that you are. And those are some of the important considerations. For sure. Now, ideally, most of this frame of thinking should have been done in the first 30 days. Given that we're now in, let's say, the third month, we are at a point where I would assume founders have uh, moved on to the second order, thinking about customer discovery, how to really retool their sales process to better be able to add value to their customers. Now, in the event where they've attempted this, they've actually um, gone back to the trough for financing a little bit too late, and they're in a situation where they may be considering winding down, what are some key considerations that you would provide in terms of thinking through this process? Yeah. Okay. So look, it's an interesting line of questioning. So I guess if I was to frame it, you would say you have a business, they've come into the crisis. They were, let's just say for whatever set of reasons, they've been unable to get the core side of their the product and customer and commercial side going effectively. They kind of got set back by the crisis. They can't fundraise for whatever reason. They're trying to fundraise and they're being unsuccessful. Then what do you do? 
you're really staring at, you know, at survivability in an existential way. Okay. I mean, look, the first thing I would say there is you want to make sure that you truly have exhausted all possible avenues of survival. Okay. There's a famous story about Airbnb when they were starting out, they went to, um, they kind of started in the last credit crisis. They needed money. So they went and sold t-shirts at, I think, a Biden Obama convention, Democrat convention, and that gave them money to start funding their business. So they, they did a kind of a throwaway survival concept to try to get some cash. So that's the extreme of existence type survival. Um, let's say that you've exhausted all of that. And now you're at a point where you've decided that you are not able to fundraise, you have burn rate, let's say, and we got to put this thing on hold. Okay. I mean, look, I think what the best practices would say are you either as founders are the shareholders or you have shareholders that are external. If you've raised your goal is to provide the best outcome in those circumstances for the shareholders. And that can take a number of forms. And one form could be that you basically, you shut down or you, what they call pause or cockroach the business, which means you run it at a zero burn and you ideally maintain the heartbeat of whatever the product is. Hopefully there's, maybe there's some customers there. You're maintaining that in whatever way you can. Maybe the, the, the teams are going to get jobs, but they can still part-time do some service to the customer and keep the thing going. And the goal of doing that would be that you saw an opportunity as the crisis abates to basically restart the business, get it going again, and get some value out of it. That would be one kind of scenario. They call that the pause or the cockroach. And then the kind of the other scenario is that you look at strategic acquisition opportunities. So if there's enough there from a product standpoint, maybe from a team capability standpoint, maybe from the existing customers that someone else could get value from and so on, you might just package that up, take it to market, and see what the appetite is of a, a strategic or other acquirer taking that, integrating that into their business and getting some value out of it. So those would be, I think, the two of the typical paths that one would go down in existential scenarios. Excellent. Now, lastly, I am curious to hear the outlook that you do have for the Canadian landscape going forward. This has been a very unique case and it takes a lot of creativity to find your way through this. I would like to hear how you see things going forward. It's a great question. You know, I, I, I would tell people that I'm probably the worst forecaster in the world. <laughs> so be careful listening to any predictions of mine. But here, here's what I'll say. Okay. We have spent 10 years as an ecosystem. It, 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 actually, I'm going to go back even further. If you look at the history of the ecosystem, innovation that is, we were set back twice very significantly. The first setback was when Nortel collapsed. So it was the largest company in Canada. It was the doll of the first era, the rise of dot-com 1.0, and then sadly it failed. That kind of put everything into the wilderness in, in terms of innovation, and things were quiet, and it was hard to fundraise for people, and the VC ecosystem was very small and nascent and so on and so forth. Then we had the next decade, the rise of BlackBerry. Okay. And they became, I think, the biggest company in the country, if I recall. And sadly, we know what happened there, right? The iPhone came out, they didn't respond effectively to that, and they got killed. And BlackBerry collapsed. So our second banner company, our flagship company in innovation, didn't make it. Now, what I will say is that thankfully, 
kind of coming out of the decline of BlackBerry, we actually started to form more strategically an innovation ecosystem. Okay. And if you take that flywheel that I talked about, every component of that flywheel has been increased and starting to spin more rapidly over the last decade. And it started with some government support into capital. And then it moved to, you know, anything from immigration visas that are more effective to all these accelerators that are rising to commercialization of research to Jeffrey Hinton on AI and Bengio and Sutton to a whole bunch of, of, of the product side, ultimately to a bit of a, a better lens on sales and marketing and thinking more globally, much more capital coming into the ecosystem and the list goes on and it spins and spins and spins. And look, the outcomes of that are Shopify, which is our current banner, about 30 or 40 or 50 other companies that are a level below Shopify that are growing very quickly, that are scaling very effectively, that are raising successively larger rounds of capital and are staying in Canada, which is awesome. And then last year was a record year for funding in the ecosystem. Secondary markets are starting to show life. We've got Verifin in St. John's, Newfoundland. We've got Skip the Dishes, Just Eats out of Winnipeg and so on. And the thing spins and spins and spins, like the theme we've been talking about this whole podcast. So the question becomes is what happens when you have a crisis of this magnitude to that ecosystem? And look, here's what I'm going to tell you is that there is a real opportunity as we come through this, when we, the, the words that people use are recovery and reimagination. So the first thing was reset which is, uh, for some reason, they like the R's, is, is kind of getting ourselves reset to the crisis. Then we start to recover, and then we can take an opportunity to reimagine. And my argument is we have the foundation in place to continue feeding the innovation ecosystem. I think that we've seen that it's still fragile, and it's, you know, it's a growing ecosystem that requires care and feeding and capital and all these good programs and things that we've talked about. We need the government to be a partner. We need big government support coming out of this. I think that they have playbooks that they can use, that they've used over the last decade that are very effective at kind of government working with industry to create capital vehicles, to create immigration programs, to do direct things from the government through the BDC, through the EDC, through the RDAs, through all these acronyms that are out there and so on. The point is, is that we can't, pull back from wanting to support the ecosystem. So how I see it is we've responded very well to this crisis. We are past survival. We are into opportunities. We're starting to see those opportunities come through in the recovery phase. We have a bunch of good government playbooks that we've used in the past to build this ecosystem. We should take the opportunity coming out of this to dust off all of the goodness of what's happened to build to where we are and double down on it in a market-centric, friendly way. If those attributes occur, then I think we are going to see a whole new level that we can step up and scale. What I would like to see is we're very good in software, as we know as a country, and getting better at it all the time. I want to see us get better at clean tech. I want to see us get better in life sciences. I want to see ag tech. I want to see a bunch of other domains. And I'm hoping that when we come out of this, that the government will support and the market will support coming together and using our flywheel and get it spinning even faster in some of these other domains. And I believe the support is there. And I believe that we as a country believe that innovation is the way forward. And there is the 
call it political wherewithal to help drive that. Excellent. I do feel within every crisis, it sparks the perfect opportunity to make more vivid the things that can be done better. I think you expressed that perfectly. So Bryce, it was definitely a pleasure having you on the show here today. I think you did express many thoughts that would trigger insights in the minds of our listeners and help to make decisions going forward. It was definitely a pleasure speaking. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. Keep this kind of stuff up. Um, these kinds of messages, when they get to the right place, create thinking and spur behaviors and actions around this recovery and reimagination. So get tons of entrepreneurs on here talking about the future of this country and, and great work to you guys. Okay. Very nice to meet you. Excellent. Talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital Podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raised your spirits during these trying times. All the best, Douglas Obusu and the Beehive Capital team.